Our great and glorious God, Lord, we praise you and we honor you this day. And we just rejoice at the thought of you reigning in glory from your throne in heaven. That God, you spoke and created all the universes. Oh Lord, you set them all in order. You call every star by name. Oh Lord, every remote galaxy you have created for the splendor of your majesty. And we praise you. We uh, look to you with great hope and eager expectation of the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we look forward to the day when you will arrest evil. And Lord, you will bring all the kingdoms of this earth in surrender and submission under your feet. Oh God, we look eagerly to that day. We pray that your will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And Lord, we long to see you fulfill that day with your mighty arm. We pray, O God, that these last days that are left before his coming, that you would save, God, that you would use us as instruments of your glorious gospel, that we might speak the gospel to others that they might be saved. Lord, that we might point them to the Lord Jesus and the great things that he has done to reconcile us to you. O Lord, we do marvel at the precious blood of Christ and his holy cross. It is a treasure to us beyond words. And Lord, it is the hope and the ground of our salvation. We thank you for all that you are to us and all that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of him. Lord, that we would be ready and willing servants. Lord, here we are. Send us, God, we pray. We thank you for this time that we have together in your word. We pray that you would richly bless it. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in our study of 1 Thessalonians, and we are just at the very end of chapter 1. Last week we got about halfway through verse 10 of chapter 1. And uh, just want to uh, kind of remind you of uh, where we've been and where we're going here. Paul was in Thessalonica for about four weeks. There he was evangelizing uh, Gentile and Jewish converts in Thessalonica. And just about four weeks into it, he was thrown out of town by an angry mob who were hired by the Jews in the local synagogue where he was teaching and run out of town. So he had four short weeks to evangelize the new, newly found Christian church and the brand new baby believers in Thessalonica. When Paul left Thessalonica, he went uh, to Berea and began preaching in a the synagogue there. And it was just a short period of time when the Jews from Thessalonica, came to Berea and ran Paul out of Berea. And uh, it was then that he um, got on a boat and went south and went to Athens and was there in Athens for some time with great concern in his heart for the new church that he had left behind in Thessalonica. And so it was just a few short months later that he had an opportunity to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. We learned this in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. 
And uh, there, he found a healthy, vibrant, thriving church who had, in just a few short months, evangelized the entire province of Macedonia and the province of Achaia. And even in other places beyond that, they had preached the gospel and began to make disciples and establish churches. And this was an amazing thing that happened in this little church. Well, Paul kind of commends them, doesn't kind of commend them, he, he definitely commends them in many ways in the whole first chapter. <coughs> And he's kind of finishing that up when we get to the end of chapter 1, specifically verses uh, 9 and and 10 there. Paul says, uh, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, that is, all the other believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so, if you will, he describes just a little bit what their conversion looked like. And he said that they had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And here he describes their faith as this, as waiting for his son from heaven. And if you will... There's a bit of eschatology here in the fact that these Thessalonian believers had begun now to wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we pointed out last week, this was common in all the churches because it is the great and blessed hope of the church. Amen. We are eagerly awaiting the soon coming of our Lord, who when he comes again is going to fulfill all those Old Testament messianic promises of his rule. Amen. And even though he rules now from the right hand of God in heaven, there's going to come a day when he brings his physical rule to the earth and he is going to establish his throne in Jerusalem and his kingdom upon the earth. And from there, Christ will reign for a thousand years. And during that thousand year period, there will be a time of great peace on the earth. Men will, as the prophets said, beat their swords into plowshares. And it will be at that time that there will be a tremendous peace under the rule of Christ while Satan is bound during this time, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And at that time, uh, toward the end of that thousand-year reign, the Scripture says that Satan will be released again, and he will go out to deceive the nations, and he will gather the, the deceived nations again to make war against the Lord. And it's at that time that the ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord's wrath will come to fruition and Christ will destroy all of his enemies physically, including this heavens and this earth. And uh, if you will, um, there's going to come a point in time when God destroys the earth that we now stand on. And of this, both the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, speak. And uh, there is much to be said about that. But nevertheless, the current state of the evangelical Christian church is, we are waiting for his son from heaven. And when he comes, the scripture says, we are going to be transformed. We're going to be changed. With that, I'd like for you to open your Bible and look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, we haven't talked about this scripture much, but we are going to talk about it at length as, as we get uh, later into chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and following, I'm going to read for you there. Now, this is concerning the resurrection, the, what we would call the first resurrection, Okay, so if you're familiar with Revelation 20, there is a a term there that uh, is referred to as the first resurrection. Okay, the first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous. Okay, this is synonymous with the idea of the rapture. It's synonymous with the idea of the dead in Christ being raised and those who are alive and remain being caught up to meet him in the air. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 14 and following. Uh, but about that time, Paul writes, and he speaks here in 1 Corinthians 15, because his main discourse in 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection from the dead. And he's given an extensive teaching about what the resu- resurrection of the dead will look like and, and some different uh, aspects of its character and nature. And so in chapter uh, 15, verses 50 and following, he describes what happens to living Christians at the time of the first resurrection, okay? So if you're familiar with the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, you know, according to the Lord's own word, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the trumpet call of of the archangel, right? And he says, the dead in Christ will rise first, right? And we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them together in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever, right? Well, if you will... There's a resurrection that takes place there of all the dead in Christ, and and I would uh, include of all of the righteous dead of all of the past ages, okay? All the Old Testament saints at this time will be resurrected with the dead in Christ, and, and they go first, right? For we certainly shall not precede them, says Paul, right? But then, then those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them together in the air. When that happens, the living Christians who are alive at that point in time in history will, will also be changed. They will be transformed. And this, this is what uh, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21 was talking about last week that, that we talked about there, where it says that, um, that we're eagerly waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state in conformity with the body of his glory. Okay? We're going to be changed. Well, listen to how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15:50 and following. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now here, Paul is using the term sleep to talk about physical death, okay? We will not all physically die, but we will all be changed, he says. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on the immortality. Okay, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
Amen? Amen. And so there's going to come a point in time when those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall be caught up to meet Christ and the dead in Christ in the air. This is the first resurrection. Okay? And as it says in Revelation 20, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over him. Amen? Okay, and so here we're talking about the resurrection from the dead, and we're talking about what it is that we're waiting for. (laughs) Right? We are waiting for his son from heaven. For what? To come and to give us immortal and imperishable bodies so that we never again will be subject to sin and never again be subject to death. And we will be uh, like him for we shall see him as he is. Amen. And the saints will be glorified with glorified bodies in the glory of Christ when he comes in his glory with all his glorious angels. Amen. Amen. Oh, what a day that will be. Amen? Let me tell you, we don't know the first part. But we're going to find out soon and very soon. Are you with me? Okay, praise the Lord. Well, so, when God and Christ make these promises to us about this resurrection and this glory and this kingdom, I would like to suggest that the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead is proof positive that he can make good on his promise. Amen? And this is where we ended last week. We talked about the importance of the resurrection of Christ in the promises that he has made to the church who is now waiting for him to come. Jesus' bones are not in the grave because his bones have been raised from the dead and made to be alive forevermore. Right? He says in Revelation 1, Behold, I am the living one. I was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. Amen? He, he holds the keys of death and hell. And this is Jesus. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. And so when he promises to us eternal life, let me tell you, he's the one man who can make good on it. Amen? Okay, well, so with that, Paul is describing here the nature of these Thessalonians' faith. He says that we uh, uh, that they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus. And then he makes this statement, and he really kind of switches it into full eschatology gear here. And he says, uh, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now think about what he's saying here. He's talking about something very specific. And he says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Well, this is very important. There are two important things here. First, we we get uh, rescued. And second, it is from the wrath to come. Okay, so there's a mighty deliverance that takes place. We are waiting for Christ, right? Because he's coming with a mighty deliverance. Amen? A deliverance that's already been accomplished. Amen? So if you're with me, Christ is is coming to finally glorify us, right? But there is a sense in which Christ's deliverance is is ever-present with us. Think about it in this way, okay? We are believing in a hope that has already been secured for us. Because Jesus has already dealt the death blow to sin and death. 
Amen? So what's going on right now is a, a, a course in human history where God is, by his mighty providence, working out his divine and eternal plan and saving his elect from every tribe and language and nation and people. And there's coming an appointed time in history when things are no longer going to be like they are now. God is going to change them. And when, and when he does that, our deliverance will reach its ultimate fulfillment. Are you with me? Even though we've already been delivered by Christ, okay, he delivers us. It's not that he's going to deliver us. It's that he does deliver us. We are delivered. Amen? But in, in this uh, 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 time to come, we are going to reap the ultimate deliverance, okay, which is that we're going to be transformed to be, as 1 Corinthians 15 said, imperishable and immortal. Amen? I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that day. I'm assuming you can't wait either. Amen? Amen. It's a glorious reality. And this is Christian hope. Amen? We don't hope for this world. This world's severely broke. Amen? It's got some serious problems. Amen? I've got serious problems. Amen? I need a new body. (laughs) I need a new mind. I need a new heart. Amen? And even though uh, the, uh, uh, I'm in Christ and I'm a new creature in Christ and God is sanctifying me, let me tell you, there's going to come a day when I will never again wage war in my own heart and mind for sin. But all my thoughts will ever and continually be glory. Amen? Man, I'm looking forward to that. Amen? I loathe my sin. I hate it. Don't you? So, God help us. We are eagerly looking forward to this day, are we not? So, two things here. We are rescued, and it is from the wrath to come. This rescue in this verse is not from the affliction and tribulation that Christians endure from their persecutors, but specifically from the eschatological wrath of God, his judgment of eternal destruction, which will be poured out on those who do not know God, and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may be familiar with the verse that we looked at last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. It appears there at the bottom of page 16 and, and on to the top of page 17. I want to remind you of what's said there. He says, uh, verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these, he says... You see, he's talking about a point in time in history when the Lord is going to come in flaming fire with his mighty angels. And at that time, he's going to deal out retribution to the unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world of rebel sinners. Amen? They're going to get their due. And choosing not to receive the mercy of God, the only thing left for them is raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If God offers you mercy freely and you don't take it and you desperately need it, there's only one thing left for you. Amen? And so there's going to come a day when that's going to happen 
a point in time when that's going to happen. But in verse 9, he begins to describe what that is. And let me tell you, this goes far beyond the point in time when it's going to happen. He says this, these will pay the penalty of what? Eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. And so Paul talks about this wrath to come. Okay? Now, there is a point in time in history when this wrath will come. And Jesus will appear in the sky with his angels in flaming fire. Okay? However, that wrath, in, in this sense, only is inaugurated on that day. But it is an eternal wrath. It is an eternal destruction. Whereby those who do not obey the gospel, right? And do, do, oh, I'm sorry, I want to say that right. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, listen, they will be uh, pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is the verse of scripture, family, where we understand death to be what? Separation from God. Right? What happens? They are uh, put out of his presence. They are destroyed away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Separation from God. Let me tell you, that's a terrible thing. Words cannot tell how terrible that is. Separated from every good thing. Jesus describes that place as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's a terrible place, let me tell you. But that is the doom of mankind who has utterly rejected God and his plan for salvation. Amen? But not so the case with Christians. Amen? We're rescued from the wrath to come. And we're eagerly waiting for that day of our final rescue. Amen? And we have sought refuge in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sought refuge humbly before Christ. We have come for healing. Amen? In surrender and in submission to his will, we have voluntarily said, God, I'm sorry for my sins. Help me never to sin against you again, Lord. Amen? And so this day, nevertheless, family, is approaching. But understand that this wrath that Paul speaks of here is an eschatological wrath. In other words, it's the wrath of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Okay? So something you always have to understand when you start getting into eschatology. You, you, if you were in the first service, Pastor Tim was talking about near and far fulfillments this morning concerning the promise of Abraham and the covenant that God ratified with Abraham. But in eschatology, this is an important principle. There are what we call near and far fulfillments. Okay, Near and far fulfillments are, in a, in a, in a section of apocalyptic literature or prophetic literature, there may be a place where the prophet speaks of a series of events or a, of, a, of a, what appears to be a single event which actually has multiple fulfillments in the course of history. Okay, so just like this wrath that's here in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, let me tell you, there's going to come a real day when that wrath appears at the second coming of Christ 
and there will be real people on the earth who will be subject to uh, this wrath immediately and finally right there under the mighty hand of Christ himself. But let me tell you, that is just the beginning. That's just the inauguration of the wrath of God. For the unbelieving and the wicked, they will partake of that wrath forever and ever. It is an eternal destruction. Okay? So here's the concept I'm wanting you to get. That that wrath has two facets. It has a point in time in history when it comes to pass. Okay? And it's at that point in time in history where those Christians who are alive and remain receive that ultimate rescue of resurrection. Okay? But it is also a wrath that continues forever and ever from which we have already been rescued. Are you with me? And so you have to understand these, these, these different aspects of this wrath. Nevertheless, nevertheless, this wrath that he's spe- speaking of here uh, encompasses both of those. Okay, so wrath in Paul's eschatology is always that which proceeds from God. And it is of this wrath that the gospel warns all mankind to come and find refuge in the atonement of Christ. Here's, here's what the gospel is saying. If you will come to Christ and trust in his person and his work for the penalty of your own sins, on the basis of what Christ has done, God will forgive you and take his payment as the penalty for your sins and impute to you the perfect righteous life of Christ so that you can be counted as completely and totally righteous in the sight of God. That's what the gospel declares. So what happens is, is when Christ pays the penalty of our debt and he bears our sins in his body on the tree, we no longer have any penalty to pay. And it's through this expiation, the removal of guilt, and this propitiation, right, the satisfaction of God's wrath, that that this atonement comes to benefit us. It's this atonement of Christ, the once for all death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross that delivers us from this wrath to come. Are you with me? And this is what the gospel is proclaiming. Family, this is why the gospel is not God loves you and has a plan for your life. Okay? Listen. If you will come to Christ and surrender your life to him as master, Lord, and Savior, let me tell you, God has a good plan for your life. Okay? But if you reject Christ, let me tell you, God has a plan for your life, and it ain't one you want to hear about. Are you with me? And, And here's the whole deal. The gospel is dealing with the sin issue, which is why there's a Savior, which is why there's a cross. Because we are in a desperate and needy state. Amen? We have racked up a mountain of sins and rebellion against the holy God who in his perfect justice is going to deal with that sin. Either Christ is going to die for that sin or you are going to die for that sin. Amen? But somebody's going to shed blood for that sin. Why? Because God is good. That's why. Because he's not evil. And he can't just pass over sins. Amen? Are you with me? So he provided the atonement of Christ to do that for us. And family, it's as simple as this. Trust Christ for your righteousness and repent of your sins. And you will receive 
this rescue from the deli- and deliverance from the wrath of God. Amen? That's what the gospel proclaims. All right? So, as we talk about this wrath to come, we need to understand it's the gospel that delivers us from this. Specifically, that the sacrifice of Christ has propitiated God's wrath as he took the place of those who believe in him to pay the penalty of God's wrath for them as a substitute. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And it is the primary work of Christ that rescues us from God's eternal wrath, which we also call death, or in the book of Revelation, the second death. Okay? Listen. It's the gospel. It's believing in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that rescues us from the wrath of God. Okay? However, even once we've placed our faith in Christ, we are now still living in a body of sin, and we are now at war within our own members, right? To, to live a holy and righteous life before God, for which we desperately long, Right? but still yet seem to fall short continually. Why? Because we're in a process whereby God is preparing us for the age to come. He's making us holy. If you, if you think about this contrast, it's really pictured very clearly in Hebrews 10:14, which says this. It says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Are you with me? And so here's this contrast of, We've been made perfect forever, yet we're being made holy or we're being sanctified. We're in that process of sanctification, okay? But family, all of that struggle for sin in your life is ultimately going to reach a day that we call glorification, right? Which is the crowning uh, uh, work of salvation whereby on that day when he comes to be glorified in his saints, and our lowly body is going to be transformed into conformity with the body of his glory, right? We are going to receive an immortal and imperishable body, and we're going to be ultimately freed from sin completely, finally, and totally. Amen? And in that, we will be utterly rescued at that point from death. This is what immortal means. Okay? Now think about this profound thing. God has promised us immortality. That ain't no fairy tale. Are you with me? That is the Christian hope. It's been the Christian hope for 2,000 years. And it remains to this day. Because all of you are on the edge of your seat, just like me, eagerly awaiting for that ultimate deliverance. Amen? That's our hope. That's the blessed hope of the church. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? I mean, how many days go by we're not longing for that to happen? Amen? Because we're so uh, loathing of the evil and the wicked sin in this world. Amen? We can't wait for that day. We are looking forward to that day. But family, let me tell you, we're longing for the day of the Lord because it's on that day that we're going to be united to Him in glory. Okay? But let me tell you, we wouldn't wish that day on our worst enemies for what's coming upon the world. When Paul talks about being rescued from the wrath to come, I want you to know. I know a lot of preachers don't tell you a lot about this, but I'm about to describe it to you right out of the scripture. Okay? It is something to be delivered from. And it is something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Are you with me? 
Let me tell you, when, when the holy God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is your enemy, and he comes and finally pronounces his judgment and his wrath on you, of which there will never, ever again be hope of any escape, there is no more pitiful condition in all of the imagination that can possibly take place. Are you with me? This is a terrible thing. And so it is this that we are rescued from. It is from the hands of an angry God of judgment and wrath. And let me tell you, God is an angry God of judgment and wrath toward those who have rejected his way of salvation. He is going to judge sin. And it is going to be a serious and a terrible thing. You know, terrible is a word we use to describe God. At least it's a way, it's a word we used to use to describe God until we turn God into a big, happy grandpa with white hair and sits on his chair in heaven and pats everybody on the head. Right? Who's always and only filled with benevolent desires toward everything he's made. A God that never judges anything. Right? A God that overlooks sin. A God that overlooks all the injustice that's taken place. I'm sorry. That's not the God we serve. Let me tell you. He's terrible. He's awful. That means full of awe. You with me? And let me tell you, God, is there a more gracious, loving, merciful being in all of creation? No. God forbid. That's him. That's our God who is also a God of justice and wrath and anger toward evil. There is coming a day of reckoning, family, and God is going to reckon all the accounts and make them right. Are you with me? Take refuge in the cross. There's no other hope. Take refuge in the cross. Amen? And this is what the gospel is all about. Notice the us here who are rescued is those who have repented of sin, placed their faith in Jesus, and who are waiting for him and serving the living and true God. It's kind of a description of what Christians are, right? They, they are those who are waiting for him. Who's the us? Those who are waiting for him. Who's the us? Those who are serving the living and true God. Amen? Their faith has made an impact in their lives so much that it's changed the things that they do. Now they serve God with their lives. Amen? They serve God with their mouths. They serve God with their hands and their feet. Amen? And this is who Christians are. That's the us who's been rescued. Those who are not included in this number will indeed find themselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I would, I would commend the sermon of Jonathan Edwards to you. Read it. Learn from it. And let me tell you, he spends some... Uh, many, many paragraphs and pages describing, if you will, uh, with vivid portrayal, biblical ideas of what the final eschatological wrath of God will be like. And I want to tell you, he doesn't do it justice. One of the greatest Christian minds who's ever lived sits down with a pen and tries to write and tell us how terrible that day will be. He doesn't touch the first part of it. Let me tell you. God is infinite. God's grace, his love, his mercy, right? His love is like, is like the mighty mountains, right? <laughs> right? 
His justice flows like the ocean's tide. It's vast. It's deep. Okay? Family, listen to Isaiah chapter 63, verses 3 through 6. There God is speaking, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments. I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. And I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on earth. Or in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 12, And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And so, if you will, a couple of passages that speak about God's wrath and his anger that is coming in this last day, in these last days, should I say. There are many verses and passages in Scripture that tell us of the coming of God's wrath upon the earth and its inhabitants. In fact, there will come a point in history when the present heavens and earth will be destroyed by God. Ultimately, there will come a day when the entire world and all its inhabitants will be destroyed by God and a new heavens and a new earth will be created by God. Now, you may not be aware of this in Scripture. Maybe you're very aware of it. But the Scripture very clearly says that God is going to destroy this world. He's going to destroy it with fire. Okay? Now, I want to just kind of get your mind cooking here. This is time. Okay? And here's creation. And here's, here's let's just say this is the Old Testament period. And here's the cross. Right? Here's the glorious cross in the fullness of time, right at the right time in the course of history. Right, Carol? Yeah. I say that. She wrote a commentary on Galatians that Pastor Tim comments from all the time. And there's a verse in Galatians that says, right, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Right there. The fullness of time. Okay? So that right at the right time, God sent his salvation to mankind. Right? And I'm not sure if you realize, but the greatest number of human beings that have lived in the course of history is from this time forward. Each each year, each successive decade that goes forward, there are more and more people on the earth. There are more people alive on the earth today than, I, I don't know the actual statistics, but for a huge section of thousands of years in human history, more people are alive today, okay, than have been in all of this time. It's an amazing thing, this uh, fullness of time. It's an interesting thing to consider. However, as time goes on, <clears throat> there's going to come a point in time in history 
when Christ is going to come. Second coming. Okay? And this church age that we're in now, this gospel age where we're preaching the gospel and God has opened wide the doors of salvation for all who will believe and repent, right? It's going to come to an end. And on, and when that comes to an end, okay, there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection of all the righteous dead who've ever lived from that time, from the beginning of, of time until then. Okay, and I'm just kind of giving you a general overview of eschatological timelines. Okay, then Christ is going to set up a thousand year kingdom upon the earth. And at the end of that thousand year uh, uh, kingdom, remember I told you about the rebellion of nations and the the, uh, Satan is loosed again and all of that. Well, at the end of this comes the great white throne judgment. Right. Great white throne judgment. The destruction of Satan, right? And the destruction of the present earth, okay? This old earth is going to pass away. It's going to go. It's going to be destroyed by fire. So here's this thing I'm wanting you to see. This time period in between here and here is what we call the day of the Lord, the age of the Lord. I'm going to go into great detail on this from a little further down, okay? But I want you to get this in your mind. That there is a day when this is inaugurated, and there is a day when this is consummated. Nevertheless, this whole age of a thousand years is referred to in the Scripture as the day of the Lord. Okay? For example, in the book of Amos, it's the day of the Lord when they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and there's going to be a rule of righteousness and peace on the earth okay but in zephaniah let me tell you it's a whole different kind of a day it's a day of blackness and darkness and doom and clouds and in the fire of his jealousy the whole earth will be consumed behold he says i will sweep everything off the face of the earth man and beast alike zephaniah chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 okay and so so uh the the point is just that there are these prophecies about the day of the Lord which, which may be pointing to this point in history or they may be pointing to sometime in the middle of this age or they may be pointing to the ultimate fulfillment here. This is what apocalyptic literature does. It has these near and far fulfillments. As a matter of fact, you may see one or more events in one little passage of scripture that refer to events that happen here and here. Okay? And so that can be difficult to discern. And this is how come when people study eschatology, they always wind up scratching their head going away. And there's 14 different camps or beliefs about this or that or the other because they're all taking this different perspective. And you know what I mean if you studied eschatology, right? Nevertheless, the fact of the matter is getting these general timelines in order, okay? Creation, right? We could say, you know, another one is the fall. Of course, that's a, a major part, right? Another one is the flood, that's another major part, right? But you get these things going in the course of time in the history of redemption, right? And so you got creation, fall, flood, cross, right? Church age, right? Kingdom age. Okay, now, the kingdom of God is broken into time and space here with the gospel being offered, but it, it, it has a much greater stage of fulfillment in the course of history, when Christ himself will rule as king on the earth, the second Adam. 
He's going to rule over this earth and he's going to physically sit on a kingdom and he's going to restore the nation of Israel and he's going to lot out the land to the family tribes just like he promised them in the Old Testament. It's going to come a point in time when God's going to save the entire nation of Israel. He's going to plant them again in the land and he's going to give them their family inheritance. You know what they're going to do there? They're going to rest on the hills and the mountains of the Lord. Yes, ma'am. Is that where Ezekiel's temple is fulfilled? Yes. It's commonly understood that Ezekiel's temple is going to take place in the uh, kingdom age. Uh, however, it is an extremely controversial point of scripture because of the nature of what surrounds Ezekiel's temple. And uh, I will try to address that. Uh, when we when we get to that point, that's quite a rabbit chase. Uh, nevertheless, uh, getting these general timelines down, okay? You got you got the you got the cross, the church age, the inauguration of the kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom, and then beyond here, what we have is the eternal kingdom. Okay, now I want to tell you something about the eternal kingdom. Get this in your mind too. Start chewing on this. We're going to talk a lot about it. But during this time, there is what? A new heavens and a new earth, right? And if you will, in this new... Now, heavens, make a distinction in the scripture between heaven, which is what? God's abode, where God lives. Heaven is where God is now. It's a place where God is. If it has time and matter and all that, I I can't tell you. God is outside of time. I don't know that. However... It is in the scripture where God is. Okay, Heaven is where God is. But there are also what, what we call the heavens. Plural. What is that? Somebody tell me, what are the heavens? Stars and planets, Stars and, planets and sky and all that. Okay, So when you, when you hear this word, he's talking about the stars and the planets and the skies. When you hear this word in its singular form, and sometimes capitalized, okay, it's talking about the place where God is. And so we say, we're going to go live in heaven with God forever, right? Well, that's true, except that it's not actually going to be in heaven, let me tell you, okay? It's going to be on earth. So, so the only thing there, this isn't tricky at all, it's just that God is going to come and make his abode with men on the earth, right? Isn't this the great promise of Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, where he says, uh, uh, behold, I created new heavens and new earth, uh, and the former heavens had passed away, right? And he says, uh, behold, I'm making all things new, right? And, and I'm going to come and dwell among men, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, right? And, and uh, now the abode of God is with men, right? So heaven comes to live in the presence of mankind on earth. And so, if you will, we're not going to go live on a bunch of clouds with harps. Okay? We're going to live in a glorious, redeemed earth. Family with mountains and valleys and trees. Right? And rivers and fruit. Right? And all these glorious things. It's going to be wonderful. Right? But, and, and so, when we talk about heaven in the eternal sense, we're talking about living on the new earth with God. Are you with me? So uh, I understand that's probably putting much of your theology to test. So go study your Bible and come back and refute me. Or say amen, brother, one or the other. But the the point is that um, 
to get these general timelines down, okay? Now, I'm going to help you with this. In the coming weeks, Lord willing, if I have breath, uh, I'm going to fill in for Pastor Tim uh, on the Sunday morning sermon on uh, December 6th. And I believe I'm going to be teaching through Revelation 20 there. And the goal of that is to talk about the millennial kingdom and the things that the Bible says specifically about how these things happen in the course of history. And um, I'm going to do some other things that are going to build up to this point where we get the whole thing of, of eschatology. But So I want you to understand this for this morning's lesson, that there is a point in time when this wrath begins and it starts. It's right here at the inauguration of the kingdom. Okay, Just before this end of time, there is a seven-year period called the 70th week of Daniel, during which the tribulation takes place, and at the end of which the wrath of God begins. Okay, And when that wrath of God begins, uh, this is the wrath that we read of, Jesus coming in flaming fire with all his angels in glory. It's right here. Second coming of Christ. And every eye will see him, the scripture says, right? Matthew 24, what does it say? It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, a sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn, right? Every eye will see him. All the nations will mourn, right? There's going to be signs in the heavens, right? The sun won't shine. The moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken, And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a loud trumpet call and gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. That's the word of God. Amen. And so uh, the point is, is that he's coming. He's coming with power and great glory. And family, that's going to be a day of dancing for the righteous. But for the wicked, it's going to be a terrible time. And, and, and I want to tell you what the scripture has to say. This will just take a moment. And you won't want to think about it much beyond this. Isaiah 24, verses 3 and following. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they have transgressed its laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Later on, same chapter, verses 19 and following. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. And they will be gathered together like prisoners in a dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days they will be punished. The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. He writes in the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 18, 
Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Or in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Therefore, wait for me. What are Christians doing? Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to pray. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Or in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, so we're going to end here, but I want you to get this point. We read several scriptures there that said God was going to make a destruction of the entire earth. Are you with me? And this is referred to as the day of the Lord. Amen? You with me? But what I'm trying to tell you is the day of the Lord is an age. It's not just a specific day. There is a day on which it begins, and there is a day on which it ends. And there are many, many days in between. Okay? So you may be reading an apocalyptic passage, and it may be referring to something that happens here in time. Or it may be referring to something that happens here in time, or it may be something that happens here in time. Okay? So, for example, when the scripture says, the whole earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, the Lord has spoken this word, right? Or in the fire of his jealousy, he will pour out all his burning anger and the earth will be devoured by the fire of his zeal. Or, on that day, the Lord's wrath... Um, in the fire of his jealousy, he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Okay? That's going to happen here. At the end of the thousand year period, when he destroys the whole heavens and the earth, and the devil, and all the wicked dead are thrown into the lake of fire. It's a great white throne judgment. Okay? From that time forward, you open up the book that happens in the end of Revelation 20. Okay? You open up in chapter 21, and what happens? Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. Because you see, when, the, when he sees the vision of the great white throne judgment, you know what it says? It says, earth and heaven fled from his presence, for there was no place for them. Because you see, when God comes in the fire of his burning zeal, and he pours out all of his anger, on, on all the inhabitants of the earth who have at that time gathered to make war against him, right? He's going to destroy the whole show. He's going to destroy wicked, the wicked and evil once and for all 
even death and hell itself are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, never to be seen again. And this old broken earth is going to go away. It's going to be completely destroyed. The elements are going to melt with fervent heat. Okay? And it's at that point that the Lord is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And the promise of his righteousness forever. There's not going to be any sin in that world. Never again, family. Immortal. Imperishable. Amen? What a glorious day that will be. So, hear hear me out. It is because of this dreadful day of judgment and wrath that is coming that this deliverance by Christ is so important who delivers us from the wrath to come. Of this great truth, Calvin comments, listen to this. He says, Christ, it is true, delivered us by his death from the anger of God. But the import of that deliverance will become apparent on that day. You think we understand it now? Let me tell you. When we see God angry, destroying the earth and all the inhabitants of the earth and the nations gathering to make war against him and the terrible destiny that awaits them, let me tell you something. We're going to understand how important it was that we were saved. You with me? Therefore, let us who name the name of Christ look eagerly to the day of his coming when we will finally be delivered from this fallen world and united to him forever in heavenly glory, free from sin and death forever. Amen? Okay, let me say this. I know I got your whistle, your whistle wet here, and you probably have about 14,000 questions. So we're going to spend several months going over and going through these things, and I'm going to address a lot of things, not just here in the class, but in other venues. And uh, I promise a lot of your questions are going to get answered. So just be patient and, and, uh, and, and read up on your eschatology, okay? And if you need some good resources, holler at me, and I'll point you in the right direction. Let's pray. God, our Father, O Lord, these things are uh, scary. God, these things are, are uh, awful. They're terrible. And, and yet, Lord, we know that you have offered to us life eternal, joy and peace forevermore in your kingdom of glory and righteousness. Oh, Lord, we want to partake in that. More than that, Father, all of the loved ones in our life who don't know you, we, we want them to partake in that. And so we pray that you would use us as gospel ministers to reach them, God. Help us to speak the gospel clearly and articulate it to them accurately. Help us to be living examples of your love and your mercy and your grace to all of those in our life whom we long to see saved. And God, we just pray that you'll move upon their hearts, that you'll draw them to yourself by your mighty power, and that, Lord, you'll save their souls from death. We thank you for the great privilege that we have to be rescued from these things. We pray that in all of uh, this and in all of our lives that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.